0: Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Tripanion medical insurance for pets. Don't let unexpected vet bills throw a wrench in your plans. Let the Trupanion policy provide the protection you need against the unexpected. If you're a breeder, the Tripanian policy has a special additional rider that provides coverage for breeding concerns such as emergency C-sections. Even more, Trupanion has a breeder support program that allows you to send your litters home with a special offer of medical insurance for pets. Learn more about all of the perks available to breeders like you by clicking the link on my partner page and be sure to let them know Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am quite fortunate to be joined today by an old friend of mine, Tanya Struble of Rush Hill Golden Retrievers. And Tanya and I Happened to be in a conversation in this new clubhouse app by accident and started talking about the concept of dual dogs. And so many people are wrapped up in this working line, show line, working line, show line, instead of thinking about how to make a dog that does all the things. And we had a fascinating conversation that I wanted to bring to you guys here at Pure Dog Talk. So, welcome, Tanya. I'm super glad that you decided you could do this. I know you can. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) So talk to us a little bit, Tanya. Give us the 411. You are a podcast listener. You know how this goes. So
1: tell us a little bit about how you got started in Goldens. I mean, I've had Goldens all my life, literally. I mean, when we first moved to Alaska, we had a husky type dog, which is what the Alaskan dog would be, you know, and I was given some money by my father to buy a dog. And of course, I wanted a collie. You know, big rough collie, right? Right. Last, the lasty dog. And my stepfather said, Oh, no, we're not having one of those in my house. (laughs) And so then I'm like down the road and I see this golden retriever, hairy, you know, pretty, nice, palm. And oh, yeah, that's okay. We can have a golden retriever. They're a hunting dog. So that's actually how I got my first golden retriever. Had no idea what they were, except it was this nice little golden dog with all this hair. That's how I got a golden. So yeah,
0: a pretty dog with lots of hair and a golden retriever is definitely closer to that than a Siberian, although it's not a collie. So I don't know. (laughs) So anyway, that's how I got a golden. Excellent. And did you start hunting or showing or doing that stuff with your family or how did you start there and get to here? Because it's a relatively impressive journey that I'd like you to share with people who aren't
1: familiar. I didn't come from a dog family. I came from people who just had dogs. So everything I did, I did with a few mentors, but mostly on my own. I mean, I started with juniors. And in Alaska, it's like I never thought I had anything good enough to show in an actual show. So most of it was 4-H or fun matches, which they had all the time. Right, And I did well in the fun matches, but I had this big racy dog with no hair first golden i had had four white feet curly hair i used to put brett's on the end of his tail to try to straighten them in the heat dryer right and then it would flip all over and he had a big big white spot on his head that was my first golden retriever so that as you know was not going to go in the ring
0: okay so the first golden retriever with the barrettes in his tail love that where did
1: you where did the next golden retriever that was maybe didn't need barrettes in its tail come from Oh, they were just pets that we had. They were just out of the newspaper. I mean, they really were. That one I did some 4-H with and did the fun matches. But if you walked into a show, they would kind of look down on you, you know, like, what is that? So you kind of just did the fun matches because there were no shows in Alaska. There were very few. So you did the fun matches. There still aren't many. Right. You just did what you could do at the moment, you know. So really, I probably didn't buy something to show until after I was married. So that was like a long, quite a few years. I just did what I could do. I did obedience. I did other things, but I didn't do confirmation because what I had was, did I want to? Oh, yes, but I didn't. We had a Basset that we got as a rescue dog and she was a cute little thing. And we would go to fun matches. This is how much I wanted to show. We had fictitious names. Oh my God. Because I thought I had to have all this stuff you know, they had to be registered. So we had names we made up and birth dates and all this kind of stuff. Cause that's how bad I wanted to show and nobody would help me. Oh my gosh. That's a
0: fabulous story, Tanya. I love that. So you got married and you got a dog that
1: you could show. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) Finally, I got one I could show. Yeah. I mean, I got a couple of them from Linda Reddington and I get like a reserve or something below. And then I happened to go to some show in Eastern Washington, my first big circuit with this one dog. And I fell in love with rebel sire, tri-valley's doc holiday. I fell in love with him and he was being bred. And that's how I got rebel okay. from Carol okay. Kwame. Okay. So that's really the first dog that I was successful with mm-hmm. was him. And he won the national in 89. Right. And you pretty much haven't looked back since. no, uh- <laughs>
0: And so, talk to me about how you have come to this secret in your heart, you can barely talk about it, goal of making a really successful dual purpose dog, not a not pretty dog and not a not hunting dog,
1: something that can really actually be successful in both arenas. You always have to have a goal, something that you can strive for, you know, not just going into the rain, but It's like to watch these dogs do what they are bred to do and they enjoy doing it is so much fun. So, right. And I think that that
0: is, for me, a big part of my journey. Like I have been working towards and breeding towards dual dogs most of my career and seeing them do what they love. My dogs show because they like being with me, but Mm -hmm. they work because they love that. Right. right. And so when we think about this topic that we started with, this show line versus working line thing, and we were talking about that dog that can do both. Talk to us about what that looks like in your mind, your avatar of that golden retriever that can do all those things.
1: Well, I guess I think... I've tried to do it with others, and they may not be as fast as a field dog, or they may have issues that we have created as owners right and when you start them at eighteen months or two two and a half, and you say, "Oh, you know, pick up the bird and they're like, oh, what is that right you know you introduce them when they're little, and then they see the show ring first, so what we're trying to do is take the ones now I've got quite a few dogs that we're working with, and for me, probably the nicest compliment is when the people that I train with, they do part of them are hunt tests and part of them are actually field trials. So they get marks that are the field trial mark, but they also, there's days they do the hunt test type stuff.
0: So talk to us really quick, because I've done podcasts on pointing breed events and I've talked to a few retriever people, but I'd love to drill down on this. I mentioned to you, I've mentioned a couple of times, My dad had field trial labs when I was a kid. I started in a little white lab coat throwing maggoty ducks for labs. But talk to people, what does it entail, a hunt test, a field trial? What's the difference?
1: And how do you decide which one you're going to be competitive at? I don't go to a lot of field trial events. I mean, I sit there and watch in training. There's no way my dogs could go 300 yards. There's just... I mean, the yardage that they do is incredible and the speed and they can't differentiate. Those guys are like bullets straight out and straight back. Mm -hmm. The hunt tests are not as far. The distance is not as far. They're just as difficult. Right. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, it's supposed to be more of a hunting scenario, but even that's not a true hunting scenario.
0: No. The thing that I always noticed when we were training dogs and the dogs that we ran did both hunt test and field trials. My dad was a judge in both venues. Okay. Yeah. Typically, the hunt test marks, as you say, are a little shorter. So when we talk about a mark for people who've not been to a retriever test or a retriever trial, you're talking about a dog sitting at heel next to you, Mm -hmm. and somebody a couple hundred yards away yells, hey, 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 maybe 300 yards away, (laughs) yells hey 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 and waves the maggoty duck in the air it used to be me and <laughs> throws it in a perfect arc because otherwise you get in big trouble and the dog has to mark that's why it's called a mark where that bird falls down and then run in a dead straight line to get it and run in a dead straight line to bring it back and that's only one that doesn't count doubles and triples and crossing water and <laughs> All of the other things. When I was in high school, my dad paid me minimum wage to train blind retrieves. So that's a whole nother thing. So there's marks where you watch the bird fall down. And then there's what they call a blind retrieve where the dog just has to trust you. And you say back and the dog has to run lickety split in a straight line straight until you blow the whistle. And then it has to turn around and sit and you have to give it arm signals. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot involved in
1: these tests. Oh, totally. And I mean, I think it's incredible to watch some of these field trial labs and the memory skills that they have. And some of the marks that they do are just incredible to watch. Do I think a Shogun can do it? Not so much, only for a lot of other reasons. They don't have the same kind of drive and genetics to do it. Can they do them at hunt test stuff? Oh, I think they can, you know, with the right training. Right. But still, it's fun to go out there and see your dogs do some of those marks, and they're tweaked a little bit for them, according to in the training what that dog's ability is, and you're trying to teach them also. Right. But it truly is incredible. There's some of those dogs there you just watch and go. I mean, she does never make a mistake. I mean, right. they just don't. They're straight. Get it? And how they can find something that far away and nail it and come back and get the third one is just beyond me. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, you watch a triple mark or a double blind or something and they have to, when they cross the water, they can't waver. Right. Like they have to be running on the same straight line when they come out of the water as when they went into the water and they can't run the bank. They can't go the easy way around. They get dinged for that. And so I really, really love watching dogs do what they were bred and designed to do. Right. So a golden retriever was a hunting dog that retrieved waterfowl developed in
1: Scotland, for God's sake. And upland game. Okay. They actually were for upland game too. Okay. So that's why they now could be in the spaniel test for the pheasants and the other kind of stuff. It's because they were also for upland game. Interesting. Okay.
0: I'm not sure I had heard that. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. So the golden retriever, When we think about what the dog was literally designed to do, this run in a straight line thing really wasn't it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, seriously, if they were out
1: hunting, running in a straight line was not necessarily the most important thing. Yeah, because they do do upland game. They do do pheasants and quartering and all that kind of stuff. But so do the labs can do that too. Oh, yeah. My dad hunted over more labs
0: than I can count before we ever had the first clumber or wire hair, either one. Mm-hmm. That was his hunting dog. Was Robin Nine, <laughs> very <laughs> first lab, Robin Nine. Never forget that one. Oh boy. Okay. So as you're working towards these goals, attempting these tests that are the hunt tests are challenging in and of themselves. And like any other testing system in the American Kennel Club, there's a junior hunter, a senior hunter, and a master hunter. Master hunter, you have to pass in retrievers. Is it five or six times? To qualify for a master,
1: I think it's six. Yeah, I think it is. But you can also go right to that. It might be five if you have your senior, but then you can go right to six if you go straight into master, which some people they allow you to do. Yeah, you can do that in the pointing and spaniel test as well.
0: But I think passing that test six times, and even when it's not competitive. So the difference between hunt tests and field trials, same in retrievers as it is in spaniels or pointing breeds, or even the hounds. The hunting tests are pass-fail, whereas the field trials are competitive. Correct. Win or lose. And you only get points if you win. Correct. So passing that master hunter test six times is a challenge.
1: I mean, there is a huge jump from junior to senior because that's where you have your blinds. And then there's a huge jump for us between senior and master because they have the double blinds and the triples and all the diversion birds and all that other kind of stuff, too. Right. Yeah. The Master Hunter
0: test is an impressive test. And way, 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 way back in the day, the fellow that my dad trained dogs with, and I would go throw birds with, judged the very first of the Master Hunter Nationals.
1: Oh, wow. Um, Yeah.
0: Bob Klussman was his name. So yeah, I spent a lot of, lot of my childhood. (laughs) Throwing birds. maggoty ducks in white lab coats. Yes, indeed. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Are you ready to take your breeding program to the next level and decode your dogs? Embark is celebrating DNA month with reduced tiered pricing during their annual sale. Stock up and save all month long with exclusive offers to celebrate. Embark's industry-leading full-panel dog DNA test identifies health risks physical traits, and genetic diversity for breeding programs. Embark helps breeders select ideal breeding pairs to support healthy pedigrees and the lifelong care of dogs. Did you know you can plan for coat color, type, and other traits in your puppies? That's where Embark comes in. Don't miss our annual DNA Month sales event. To get up to speed before you breed, visit EmbarkVet.com and use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off of each kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK. As you're looking at your young dogs that you're developing and you see some that are showing you some potential, are you maybe putting the time into the field instead of the show? How are you working towards this sort of secret heart goal?
1: Well, we're trying to do both picking and choosing like they've got several dogs that we've been working through and I let them pick the dog. That's how our goal is, is to pick the one that they also think is going to do both as well as I think. I hope it's one that I can pursue the show stuff, too. And Mm -hmm. these dogs are going back and forth. Fortunately, they're only about 20 minutes from here that's your field trainer that you work with. Yeah. And they've done a great job with the dogs. You know, I mean, there's days that they do field trial stuff. There's days that they do hunt test stuff, but there's some things that, you know, I mean, just like showing a dog greatly, perfectly in the confirmation ring and knowing when to do what you have to have timing for there too. And so I'm realistic enough. I can do the juniors and I would like to run a senior, but I would want to run a senior test on a dog that's already got a senior title right? (laughs) for my own experience. Well, if it
0: makes you feel any better, my Master Hunter that I owned, Champion Master Hunter, specialty winning, all of that, I tried running him in Master and it was a fiasco. I mean fiasco. And so friends of mine actually were the ones who had to run him and put his Master Hunter title on him because... I got so nervous and I find this to be true. I'd be curious your thoughts. I don't get nervous in the show ring. No. Like we do that all the time. Right. But when I was doing the field work, I don't know if I was more infested or just less comfortable, less knowledge. I don't know. I would get so nervous in the field that he would pick up on it and he'd shut down because
1: he didn't know what was wrong with mom. But don't you think some of that too is because we're so comfortable with that? And just like in any kind of other venue, there's so many different ways that people teach and you do it according to what that person does. Then all of a sudden person A conflicts with person B and person C is in the middle. And then you go, I don't really know what to do. You know, I mean there are so many ways to do all of it. Right. Their timing is so impeccable that unless you have that timing that's that impeccable, it's very difficult to help the dogs. You want to give those dogs the confidence that they're doing the right thing, not the wrong thing at the wrong time. Right. You right. know, so to me, I would just as soon watch them perform well, then be the one at the line going, oh my God, you know, or they're going, do the whistle now. Well, you're already late. If they're saying now, you're already <laughs> If they're already saying late. now, you missed it. Yes. Yeah. And that's not fair for the dog.
0: No. And I think it's a really valid point that one of the ways that those of us who can look Or consider or find this to be worth pursuing, can do it because there are only so many hours and so many days. Is to consider finding a professional to help you in whichever venue is not your comfort zone. Like if you're really great in the field, but terrified in the show ring, hire a handler. And the same thing goes in the field. I think that that is a really, really valid way to pursue these goals.
1: Well, the nice thing here too is I'm close enough that. I can go get them, bring them home, groom them back up, spend some time here, and then take them back. And I like some of the dogs, though, because they've gone two years before they've done this. Of course, I show up to the training, and they're like, Mom, I want to see you. And then I'm like, really? Come on, guys. Just show me what you can do Right. instead of looking at me the whole way. So these young ones now we're going back and forth with quite a bit so that I can be there and watch them. Just the person who's standing outside the ring, but they want to watch their dog go in a circle and it won't go in a circle because it smells dad. You know, same Same thing happens here. So I've got a couple young ones right now and we'll see who they end up choosing at the end of the day. (laughs) And hopefully we'll go for some top confirmation stuff and some top field stuff. That's the goal. See what we can do. Right.
0: But it's exciting. Like the look on your face, I can just see you're excited. You're like so hopeful for this. And I love that because I think that that's something that as dog breeders, we can focus on. We can choose to decide that we're really going to try and succeed in both of these areas.
1: Yeah. And like one of these young dogs, I'm just going to show him in bread bite. I'm just going to show him in bread bite specialties and right. he can spend his whole beginning time doing all this foundation work and then see what happens. And when he grows up, because it's going to be a good one. Well, you know, and that's <laughs> that's all you can do. Yeah.
0: Like, we know that. All you can do, and that, I think, is another lesson that comes from working with these dual dogs. Having this as a goal is you don't say, oh, I'm going to take it and win the garden. No problem. <laughs> you no. Just, you take it and you say, all right, I'm going to do what I can do. Let's see what we can do.
1: You know, it's really hard, though. The Golden has the mentality of being the small collie. The big, hairy show dogs, then you're... Double dipping on that one. Not only are you a show dog, but you're also a swamp colleague. And, you know, I've been there where I've heard people talking about my dogs behind my back. And it's just, I mean, I think people need to give these dogs a chance and see what they can do. Maybe they don't go distance that you want, but at least you tried. And it comes out from the judging aspect and from all that. I mean, at least we're trying, at least we're trying to keep their instinct. And what they want to do there, instead of saying, no, it can't be done. I'm sure I have some dogs that just assume not pick up the ducks. I have. Yeah. But you know what? One of the things that really made me feel good is when I took a batch of puppies in and Brooke Sr. said to me, he goes, man, you got a lot of good ones this time around. You know, that was, you're talking about someone who's an avid Other made me tears, an avid field trial person telling you that these are some really good puppies here, and I want someone to be able to do it. I'm going to... I know, I
0: know. (laughs) I understand because it is really important, and it is really valuable, and Tanya, I know that I have made choices in my breeding programs. Like, maybe I've got my top winning, specialty winning, group winning Gorgeous, stunning show dog. And I breed her to nothing but dual champions. I don't breed her to the prettiest dog. I breed her to the dog that I think is going to bring the field ability with them. In addition to her existing field ability
1: and hope that she holds the pretty. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, there is such a difference between in the Goldens Mm -hmm. and even in the labs between the ones that are showing and the ones that are such great field dogs, you know, right. That part is really hard. That's where it's like you just try to find out what the dog can do to make the maximum. I mean, I think it would be great. I mean, to have a best-in-show dog that can be a master hunter, I think is amazing. I mean, McLean has a brother that Lisa Newton owns, and he's the grand champion. He's won... Not a specialty, but he's got Winner's Dogs at Specialties. He's got his Master Hunter. He's qualified now at two. Nice. Jammed at two qualifying, which is really hard for the golden. Which is field trial, not hunt test. That is awesome. Right. Yeah. And one of them was an all-retriever one. So it yep. wasn't like it was a golden that he qualified with. And even who I trained with, they go, Tonya, that is so huge for him to have done that. You know, so you got a client who's pretty, doesn't want to pick up a bird, and you got his brother. Right. <laughs> So that's my question. From a breeding perspective, do
0: you breed to the brother? And what do you breed to the brother? I know. Lisa and I have talked about that. You know, what do you do? I'm serious. I'm asking. I mean, take that brother that's got a pretty brother. Take the one that's doing that and breed it to
1: something pretty. Is that something that you're thinking about? It's a thought process. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to find the right one to breed to him. Right. I almost can't think about that right now. Okay. Because the main pedigrees are getting close, I've got to do some outcrossing. So right now I'm in a phase trying to find mm-hmm. some outcrossing to bring in and see if it's going to work or not and bringing in a bitch to breed to the boys that are all my frozen semen and stuff. So I actually am not concentrating as much on line breeding because right now what I have is too close to him. Right. So tell me you're freezing him, right? <laughs> I hope they are. No, make that happen.
0: Make that happen, Tanya. Come on. (laughs) Well, I know we're getting towards the end of our time, but I really, really admire anybody who is working towards these goals. If it's baby steps, if it's giant leaps, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that you're trying that I think matters.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, it's hard because people don't understand it either. They don't understand why you want to do that always. They're like, all right. <laughs> you don't. Know, I bow down, man,
0: because I know how hard it is. You make choices, you do things, and then all the terrible things happen. Like my one dog that was going to be all of it that died of bloat at four at the field trainers. You know, I mean, all of the horrible things that happen to us as breeders. And when you're working towards such a specific goal, that becomes just exponentially more devastating. <laughs> There's so much that goes into it so much that goes into it. Wow. And money isn't even, it's time and emotion and passion and dedication. And there's a reason that people say it can't be done. It's not that it can't be done. It's that it's hard. Right. And doing hard things is not everybody's cup of tea. You said that right. And it's why I have admiration for people who do hard
1: things and why I wanted you to share a little bit about your secret heart goal. I love watching them do things that they're good at it. You know, I love watching them do the field stuff. It's just fun. Yeah. It's enjoyable. Because the dogs share your passion. I guess that's one way of putting it, huh? Yeah. Or we share their passion. There you go. I like that. Because to watch them what they're doing, it's what they want to do, not what they have to do. Mm -hmm. You know,
0: always trust your dog. That is a huge takeaway. All right. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you gracing me with an hour of your Monday. (laughs) And I look forward to watching you achieve that goal.
1: Well, thank you, Laura. All
0: right, crew. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you. To make sense out of everyday things. To add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. One of my favorite events over the last year or so has been the virtual After Dark for patrons of the podcast. Anybody can join this amazing community of dog enthusiasts by visiting the website and clicking the Become a Patron link on the homepage. While you're there, zooming around on the site, you can check out our shopping tab too. There's even a Pure Dog Talk swag link. Who knew? Share the love with all our cool gear. Check it all out at www.puredogtalk.com. Your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review.